Hello, and welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast. On this show, we bring you interviews with leading executives at today's rapidly growing B2B tech companies. We dissect the stories, strategies, and journey of CEOs, COOs, CMOs, and more as they share their professional journey. Tune in each week for new episodes from today's leaders. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B tech companies build and run revenue-generating podcasts. We set you up with weekly interviews with your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up and have engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Learn more about launching your podcast at contentallies.com. This episode is brought to you by Ad One Zero, where we do lead to close sales execution for B2B services companies with a technology flair. If you're looking to scale your company from six figures to seven figures of revenue, talk to Ad One Zero. Hey, leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge. Today, my guest is John Antonese. He's the principal and founder of Envoy Development. We're going to have a really interesting conversation about long-term entrepreneurship, growing teams, developing, selling, working in and out of niches. We got a lot to cover here. John, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Would you mind giving a quick introduction of yourself and your company, and then we'll, we'll kind of dive into the story? Sure, sure. I started Envoy Development back in 2003. Today, what we do is we mine data from what are called data historians. So data historians are flight recorders for factories, but unlike a, a plain flight recorder, they store data for years and years, and they store it for everything, every valve position, every temperature. There are um, a handful of companies that sell these data historians. One, the, the predominant one is OSI Soft's Pi system. Aspen Tech makes one, Honeywell makes one, and a company called Capstone Technology makes one. So, And there's others. So what we do is, is the, the problem with these data historians, though, is the client tools they provide, in other words, the tools their customers use, are are basic trends and the ability to dump data in an Excel spreadsheet. What we do is we pull all that data, we aggregate it by product, by grade, by production rate, and then we determine, we calculate when those variables are outside of their operating limits, and then we export those to a cloud server. We have engineers or our customers log into that cloud server. They have a dashboard and they can quickly identify, you know, of these 4,000 variables, what are the 10 things I need to worry about today? Once they clear that list, they approve it. Uh, it sends out an email to a predefined list. So that's basically what we do. And you discovered, I guess, the need for this type of more detailed business process, data management. I mean, this is going back to you started the company in 2003. What, what was that journey like to, to, to get to the start phase? And of course, we'll talk about how things were a lot different between then and now, you know, sort of on a startup front is that predates even my first uh, startup adventure by just a tad. So I can appreciate that things were not cloud. Things were a lot more sort of difficult on the server and technology type of space. But at any rate, what was the business story that, that got you there? Like, why were you solving that problem? So, so I was in the army after college and I like the outdoors. And I, when I decided to leave the military, I wanted to live in a rural area. And so uh, there's various recruiting companies that recruit junior military officers. And, and I used one and I told them, you know, I want to live in a rural area. 
And so they pointed to International Falls, Minnesota on the map and said, is this rural enough for you? It's right on the border of Canada. And so that began a 10-year stint in the paper industry for me. And I quickly kind of fell in love with technology. I learned how to program the computers that they're called distributed control systems that run uh, highly automated plants. We got this uh, data story and I told you about. But I, I, I knew I wasn't headed for the... Uh, corporate corner office. So I left that company. I went to work for Aspen Technology, which cre it's one of the creators of these uh, data historians. And shortly thereafter, I had a stint with ABB. So I was involved with operations as well as selling. And what dawned on me in the sales process, when especially when I was with Aspen Tech, is customers would ask for references, but they would never ask you know, give me your worst reference or, you know, do you have any skeletons in the closet? So, so I thought there's a need for someone to create a company, a consulting company that will help companies make decisions about software. And so that, that's, that was my original idea. So my first customer was my first employer, this paper mill that I worked at. And, and I had written an advanced control program. Basically it automated this chemical process, uh, where you add chemical and you, you bleach brown fiber into white. And they wanted me to make some recommendations on what they should do with the program that I wrote. And through that process, and they told me they wanted me to use data to prove, you know, my case. So, so I dove into this problem and I quickly discovered two things. Number one, there was no good way to pull data from these data historians. And number two, my original business idea was flawed because it was going to be very difficult to identify companies that were in that process of buying software. As an outsider, it's very difficult. So I, I decided to create my own application and and so it kind of sounds stupid, but I wrote a macro in Excel that automated an add-in from this company called OSIsoft. I had a couple of uh, sales with my original employer, and then um, I decided, you know, this is, this is going to be my business. So I, I went on a website called Rent-A-Coder and hired a kid in South America to rewrite my macro as an Excel add-in. And he's still with us today. So it's been me and him from, from day one. And so over time, you know, we've improved it. We, we, no longer, we have an add-in that statistically analyzes uh, data, but, you know, we aggregate data now through SQL Server and our own software that, you know, talks to uh, different, you know, interfaces to these data historians. So that's kind of how I did it. Yeah, great story. And I, you and I talked off mic about how having long-term team members has been important to your company and how that's different than what you see a lot, particularly in the software space now where, you know, engineers, even salespeople, marketers, you know, they'll do their two to three years, they'll move on to the next thing, you know, it's kind of an up and out type of culture has developed really since that time when you started your company, you kind of took a different fork in the road there. And there's all kinds of philosophies around, you know, do you want to have 1099s or do you want to have employees? And, you know, I think that's an endless debate that'll swing back and forth over time. But I, I love thinking about the mechanisms that you would use and the way you've thought about 
keeping a long-term team because you don't want to do like a lock-in. You want to do more like, hey, I'm treating you like a loyal, you know, sort of partner and team member. So tell that story a little bit because I think that stuff doesn't come up as much now as as it would have, you know, 20 years ago. And I, my guess is that we're going to start experiencing, you know, the downsides of not having a permanent workforce. So I'd love to go into that a little bit. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, today we have two kinds, well, more than two, but basically two kinds of employees, software developers, obviously, and then we have process engineers. And the, the software developers obviously are challenged because, as you pointed out, they tend to uh, job jump. So, so the first thing I do when I look at a developer is I look at their history on LinkedIn. And if they're jumping jobs every one or two years, I'm frankly not interested as I, as I told you off mic, one of the things that I came up with, it was very important when I started my company. You know, I'm not this like guy who like risks everything. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty conservative. And I think a lot of people that are conservative think, well, because I'm conservative, I can't start my own company. I'm risk averse. I can't start my own company. And, you know, I am, I just think that that this risk aversion needs, needs a reset in, in society because, Working for someone is a big company is not as as safe as 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 it sounds, right? You know, today we could lose a customer. We had we had a major customer have a cyber attack in January. It was all over the news, and um, you know we're we're still with them. They're still with us, but not not all of our customers are going to fire us um, overnight unless we do something drastic. So anyway, so so I. I wanted to fund my retirement when I first started my company. And so I started a SEP program, which is maybe a lot of entrepreneurs don't know about this, but it's a simple employee pension plan. You contribute, it depends on how you compensate people, but either 20 or 25% of your salary, you can defer from taxes, put in an investment account. And so I started that for myself and, and by law, I have to offer it to my employees. And so... What I have found is people either love that idea or they hate it. In other words, some people would like all of their compensation in cash and, and nothing saved for retirement. In a 401k, you certainly have the ability to opt out. In ours, you don't. So, so the people that, that like that idea, I think we found are, are long-term. They tend to stay with us long-term. The other thing that I've done, and we didn't talk about this, Ledge, but I think this this is something where big companies are really, really missing out. So when when you work in a, a paper mill or an oil refinery or some complex manufacturing um, process, you're you're gonna, as an engineer, you're gonna be a, typically a chemical engineer. You could be a mechanical engineer, but it's it's making paper is a very technologically demanding process. So there's a lot of women that go to college and become engineers. And those women then, and it could be men, but typically at some point, a young couple has children. And usually the woman is the one that decides they're not going to go back to that paper mill and work 12-hour shifts or work weekends or work holidays, things like that. So they quit and we hire them. And so, so our engineers have typically, it's kind of a, a barbell kind of situation. We, we hire women who, who have left the workplace because of that, but they can work remotely for us and things work, you know, they're really, really good. 
and they're really dedicated because it, we offer them two, two things. Number one, if their husbands, now their husbands are free, assuming it's a, it's a woman that's the stay at home. And for us, it always has been, but that guy can now take a job at another site and they're free to move. And they don't have to worry about her getting a job because she, her job is portable. We have a woman who's married to a Colonel in the air force. She's now on her fourth move, getting ready for her fifth. She joined us when her husband was an aide to a three-star in the Pentagon. Then they moved to Hawaii, then Rhode Island when he went to the um, war college, which was the Navy War College. And then they went to Germany, and now they're getting ready to go to Dover Air Force Base. So so her job is completely portable, and, and that is, I think, a key to employer retention. And one of the things that I'm worried about with the whole COVID situation is you know, hiring developers and allowing them to work remotely is, has been a, a differentiator for us. You know, when we, I mean, most of our developers are in Phoenix when we need to get together, you know, we, we get a conference room in Regis or something like that, but we have, we have been a hundred percent remote since day one. So it'll be interesting to see how, how the Facebooks of the world and, and, and those larger companies respond to this concept of let's let everybody be remote. Sure. Sure. Well, you might be looking at a different type of, you know, developer there too. So I think your combination of, of what I'll call, you know, sort of benefits package, right. With the SEP and with, you know, being able to explain the different path that's available. You know, a lot of these people are getting, you know, stock options thrown at them and, and, you know, got to move to the Valley or even work remote for a, you know, a different kind of startup. Like there are still folks that just simply don't want that kind of life. Maybe they want to settle down, you know, have their kids don't want to live in an expensive place. So even with the whole economy being kind of jolted into that direction, the persona you've described is not someone maybe that would stop paying attention, right. To the, the other things that you offer. I mean, you make a great point, like portability. I mean, that being a competitive advantage in, in the engineering space and, you know, software development and, and just having that different type of, of vibe must've been, you know, a great way to, to build. And, and you talked about, I think if, if I'm hearing you correctly, talked about cross training in many cases, engineers along on the, the sales front. I'd, I'd love to, to hear about that actually coming from a technical background and, and sort of growing up into entrepreneurship and sales myself, I was a developer. So love to hear how you're, you're doing that. I, I know a lot of my engineering friends, you know, sort of do not put me in front of the camera or do not put me on, you know, a sales call. And yet I actually think a lot of them are, are capable and, and add a lot to the sales process. So love to dive into that a little bit. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I'm just thinking about our product manager. He he's very good at uh, giving product demos. Very good at you know we had this customer that got hit with the cyber attack, so he's working with their corporate IT folks and getting everything you know back up to speed. And you know it it hit them pretty hard across a number of different things. I I don't want to go into detail, but so he's very good at that. But he's afraid to pick up the phone. He and I'm not afraid, but but it, it's it's outside of his comfort level. He'd rather email. I find a lot of engineers are naturally introverted. And the problem with technical sales is unless we can have a conversation with our customer and find out what those problems are that they're having, we're we're not going to be successful. So we found that engineers, and in fact, there's two 
two women right now that are selling for us, they start out as our customers. And one of the things my father told me once was uh, he worked for a small, he was in telecommunications his whole life, and he worked for a small company for a while. And he said that the president of the company was very good at selling. And, and he said, you know why? He said, there's two things that guy did. I'm like, okay, what, dad? You know, what did he do? He said, number one is he had complete confidence in his product. He knew it backwards and forwards. The other thing that he could do was he could commit the company. In other words, if a customer said, can you do X, Y, Z? He could say, yes, we can do that. And he could commit the company. In a large company, salespeople typically can't commit the company. And they typically don't have a very deep understanding of what that product does, especially, you know, this concept of relationship selling, which, you know, I'm not a big fan of. So, so these two engineers that were our customers, they have, I think, what, what is the third thing that's important, and that is they've used our product and they can talk about the value that it gave them when they were our customer, which I can't do because I've never been a customer of my own product. So it, um, it's leaning into social proof there, you know, as the psychological, Hey, I, right. I can tell you, I did this, this changed my life so much that I changed my career path to come and sell it. I think is a very compelling story yeah. and, and it's human, you know, and there's a lot of value to that. Yeah. It's like that old Remington, uh, shaver commercial. Remember the guy, uh, I liked it so much. I bought the company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I, I get that. And, so how do you get past the sort of, you know, I, I love that, you know, the ability to commit the company thing. And, and a lot of people struggle with, you know, entrepreneurs as they scale, as they grow. We see this all the time that, you know, at, at what point can executive founder move out of the sales seat or commit to the sales seat and have to bring on number two operator? Because you can't do all the things. And so you end up at that point where you split. And like, I will either be primarily a business development revenue type of person, leader, or I will be, you know, a president operator type of leader and I have to hire out, you know, for sales. There's just simply a fork in the road. I've seen it a hundred times. Yeah. I mean, well, I don't know what percent of our revenue is renewable, but I would have to say it's at least 95%. So we don't have to sell to, to, to make payroll tomorrow. Selling is what we need to do to grow, to grow our business. So, you know, the challenge that we have is, you know, I just described it's, it's, unless we can have a conversation with that customer's problem, we're not going to be successful. So we're very successful at that in, in the pulp and paper space, but we've, we've learned that it's difficult to do that outside of the industry that we know. And so I, I would say we are the predominant player. Well, I don't know of another company that does what we do, but, but we are quite dominant in, in the U.S. pulp and paper industry, which, which, you know, is an interesting uh, industry. Uh, you know, there's different segments of paper. You mentioned your great-grandfather started uh, federal paper board. 30 years ago, newsprint was a huge segment of the U.S. pulp and paper industry, and today it's it's almost nothing. On the other hand, cardboard boxes are booming because of internet selling. So 
that that part of the business is is you know having I won't say a renaissance. It's like it's like a new birth. It's it's paper machines that made office paper, you know, copy paper are now making they're being converted to liner machines. Some companies are more successful than others, but. So, so, you know, we know this industry and, and, and it's difficult to get into other industries if you don't, if you can't explain that problem. So I have a plan to address that, but. Right. And so I, I see that happen too, you know, that the companies, I mean, you'd like to reach the point where you're kind of the dominant solution. That's pretty awesome. And then what, you know, if you have the uh, sort of idea that we know how to solve broad business issues and we know those things apply. We've been really good at niching. Now, how do I apply the learnings, which would be really valuable to, you know, other industries? Once I will run into the wall of, yeah, but y'all are a, a paper, you know, sort of company, and we do X, Y, or Z, and you know, it's the same thing. Now, I I love how you did it because you grew a war chest. You're sort of a, you know, a niche is the right way to do these things because I often see companies that are brand new trying to apply their thing across multiple niches that are simply too large and you can't, you know, sort of bridge that without going bankrupt. However, you will eventually reach the other side of the niche if if you're lucky and not a lot of people do that. So then how do you expand, you know, into other industries knowing you can solve the problem but not having if in a sense the the social proof that, that you can put the engineer right on the phone who already did that for them. So even though we've focused on pulp and paper, we had, um, there's a guy that I worked with when I was at Aspen Tech and his name is Jack Davis. And uh, he started a company. Uh, he uh, recently dissolved it because he, him and his partner didn't agree on, on certain visions of where they were going to go. And uh, but we did a lot of work in the oil industry back in the during the global financial crisis when oil was one hundred and forty dollars a barrel, and um, so Jack and I remain friends. He knows what we do. We've showed him several times what we do. So he wants to take our process and 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 use that as as an entree into the refining and the chemical industries which, you know, in, in Asia, at least, are, are growing. Uh, the U.S. refining industry right now is probably having its worst time ever. But in, in certain areas in Asia, for example, um, it's still growing, and especially chem is, or chemicals are still, are still growing. So we're going to take this process, which, you know, I won't say we perfected it, but it, it, it absolutely can be used in other industries. And I'm thinking about the that process in general, the thing you've described there, you know, if you were to enter that space now, you might use words like, you know, sensors and data and cloud at the edge, maybe even AI, you know, machine learning at the edge. There's all kinds of work around the cloud technologies to, you know, bring Microsoft is big into this, bring the, you know, bring Azure down to the edge and, you know, all that, that type of stuff. How do you experience that, you know, as a I'll say a, a veteran and, you know, having figured this out prior to all the the magical things that, that have new names. Well, you and I were talking about how we get hit up on by everybody. I, I, I probably get five emails a day, at least, if not 15, from people saying that they've got an AI-enabled sales platform that can, you know, 
grow my business uh, exponentially in, in a week. The other day, somebody called me on the phone and they, they mentioned AI. And I said, you know, the A is accurate, artificial. What's missing is the intelligence. So when we say AI today, it's, it's basically statistics. I mean, we don't, no one that I'm aware of has a computer that can learn like, like a human brain. So we use this term AI, I think, you know, very loosely. What, what I've seen of AI is, is basic correlation analysis. And the problem that we run into when, and this is something I talk about when I give a sales presentation, is the problem with historical data. I don't care if it's in a data historian or, you know, if it's in, you know, a paper chart. When you look at that historical data, it's distorted by human and control policies. And I'll give you an example, okay? So this morning I woke up and I ran four miles. I run four miles every other day. But let's say that the amount of miles I ran were a function of what I weighed because I want to use running as a weight control mechanism, okay? So I step on the scale, and if I'm 154 pounds or more, I'm going to run four miles. If I'm 150 to 154, I'm going to run two miles. And if I'm less than 150, I don't run at all because my ideal weight's 150. I'm there. I don't have to do anything, okay? So that's my, my control mechanism is my running. So if I was to hire a data scientist, which is a popular term these days that people think a data scientist can solve all problems by looking at data without absolutely any knowledge of the process that they're looking at, a data scientist would look at that data and what would they say? What's the secret to maintaining 150 pounds? How many miles do I have to run a day? Uh, they would probably take a statistical weighted average and try to, you know, bring so, some kind of correlation to you. Yeah. So if <laughs> so, I plotted, the, if I plotted yeah. the chart, which, which, you know, I typically do that, the, it'll be a line. So 150 pounds is zero, 154 is four and two is in between. So the answer is zero. Okay. Statistically, the days I don't run at all are the days that I weigh 150 pounds. That's. That's what I talk. That's what I mean when I when I talk about policy. So manufacturing uh, processes are the historical data is distorted the same way. When an operator is faced with a problem, they start pulling levers and pushing buttons to respond to this problem. Part of what they're doing may not help at all, but when you look at that data from a statistical standpoint, it'll say, "Oh, there's this relationship that A is driving B." No. That's happening because there's a policy in place. So, so until AI can address this issue of human policies, and I'm surprised no one's even talked about it. You know that that to me is the is the is the next big thing. So, so the way we the way we um, address these policies is, as I said, when we flag these, you know, we flag issues that our customers need to be aware of might be five issues. It might be no, none. I mean, sometimes the process is running great, but we'll send this email to our customers and there's a little reply to button and the customer can hit that button and they'll say, okay, we did this because of this. And then that's written to our database in the cloud automatically. So the next time we flag that, we can see what they did to treat that problem the last time. So if they say, hey, we have a policy to always turn this motor on when this temperature goes up. Well, the next time we see the motor come on, we know 
and the temperature is higher, we know that those things are connected. And so, you know, in our software, we can also then, you know, create these relationships and say, okay, if this motor comes on and this temperature goes up, everything is okay. And, and so we're, we're addressing the policies of our customers by, by very simple means, really. And, and the other thing I would say about AI is it's, it's, it's my observation, and again, I can only speak for the pulp and paper industry, but the best run companies really are focused on blocking and tackling. And the companies that seem to have challenges are the ones that entertain the latest, the latest silver software bullet. And, and they're constantly jumping. And, and typically, I don't want to get myself in trouble for saying this, but, but at a higher level, you know, this concept of a, of a piece of software that can solve all your problems is, you know, it's, it's, it's a story made in heaven to a lot of people. But, but in real life, it's, it's not, it's not, you know, pure optimization that's killing them. It's, it's, hey, a belt fell off an agitator and nobody knows about it. And now you've got this microbiological growth. So that's, you know, we focus on those fundamental things of identifying, you know, and, and we know by experience and, and that's, you know, this, this concept of not only policies, but feedback from customers. When a customer says, you know, so we identify a belt falling off an agitator. Okay, yeah, everybody agrees, but we don't have to do anything about it. It's not that big of a deal. Well, a week later, when their paper machine is running terribly, you know, we we identify, hey, this aligns with this change, and they go down and and find out that that they have a microbiome problem. So I think what we do too is it's it's very important. You you can outsource data analysis. I mean, I don't care what business you're in. You can outsource data analysis. What you can never outsource is having somebody in that plant or that factory or that mill take what we've identified, go and look at it and see what's going on. So you're going to tag back and essentially make physical spaces and people and processes aware of the instances that maybe they couldn't be aware of because that data was locked up before. And I, I think that's a great metaphor, like you said, for any business process um, optimization, outsourcing, you know, whatever that is, if you don't have the feedback mechanism, you as a business operator can't just simply send your stuff out to, you know, the cloud or the swarm or whatever other service you ought to be getting back business optimized feedback that allows you to intelligently make decisions and change a thing. And that doesn't matter if you're running, you know, huge physical equipment or you're running any business process. You know, you need that feedback to come back and be available in a, a sensical way. We are, as businesses are really good at collecting data. We are not so good about pulling data out and making insights that are actually cause better decision making. And, and no, I don't believe, you know, that problem's ever maybe going to be fully solved, you know, where you can actually go hands off and, and the machines you know, kind of run your business. But I do think, you know, you're, you've got your finger right on that main issue. And it just shows, you know, in 20 years, nobody's got it perfect for every industry. So we all have, you know, a lot of work to do. And hopefully we can use experiences and conversations like this to draw best practices that, that can be used, you know. 
You know, what um, you just mentioned, um, you know, this feedback, how, how many times when Excel crashes on you and it says, oh, wait a minute, we're going to prepare a report to send to Microsoft. How many times do you wait for that to happen or you just kill it and start over? You know, you kill it and start over is my guess. Well, now that stuff is, you know, sort of when you sign in and they, they know that human behavior. So now when you sign up and set up all the things, what is, hey, do you agree to send us anonymous feedback? You know, we, let me ask you once at the front. This is the workflow problem there. And you kind of go, most people click through it automatically. So we got lots of data gathering. And then, of course, you talk about privacy and all that business. But yeah, you, it's, it's necessary. And on the other side there is probably nothing nefarious except an engineer who is at the low end of the totem pole and gets the aggregated feedback and crash reports from Excel. God bless that person. I appreciate you because I don't want to get the hex dump from when Excel crashes. So thank you for your service. But yeah, I mean, you know, that's that's the whole point is that can we turn anything into uh, business operational feedback? Yeah, because you're so many it. levels abstracted there. The other thing you and I talked about, you know, before the call, I, I've 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 worked for a software company, you know, familiar with the, the the ideal business model for most people in a software company is they want to maximize license revenue. And today, of course, we're talking about, you know, renewable revenue is a is a key metric. But let's let's maximize software licenses and let's minimize service revenue. And so Successful companies invariably have a great idea originally. Data storings are a great example of that. You know, it's a, it's a great application that people can't live without it today if they're in a complex factory. But the problem with traditional software, in my opinion, is that services component gives you, it, it, it allows you to have your finger on the pulse of the operation and, and what that software is doing. So our engineers use our software and we have customers that use it on their own as well. And we have certain, I'll call them super user customers who, you know, will text me and, and call me and, and, you know, they, they, I listen to them because they've had great ideas in the past. Not that I wouldn't listen to anybody, but, but our engineers, because they're using this every day and we have a lot of them, we can, we can kind of aggregate those observations, come up and distill quickly what are the best ones. When you're just selling, if we were just selling software and relying on a user group meeting once a year to get feedback from our users, we would be in trouble. Yeah, absolutely. And not every business has the benefit of being built around a thing where you can uh, in effect the facebook called this you know dog fooding and that's that's the term now i said we eat our own dog food thus we are dog fooding our solution if you haven't heard that term out there and sometimes you can do that but sometimes like you said you know you're just sort of not in the position where you can do that you you hope that you can get that internal line and in sort of proof case from your own brain is like i solved my own problem this is really relevant and I, also, I, I caution, you know, application developer types of founders or, you know, sort of technical founders who see maybe what they perceive as a broken system or something that needs to be automated or upgraded and build an elegant solution that actually never talked to a customer and got that feedback of saying, you know, see what you're trying to do there, but you did it totally wrong and you really screwed up the thing and they're not going to buy it. So, you know, 
yes, use your own things whenever you can and open up to that type of feedback from customers because that's really what your product team should build a roadmap out of. Not that you had a great idea for fixing some process that you never worked on. You've got to have a customer feedback mechanism whereby you will learn what things you know actually uh, matter out in the space. We're going to run out of time. John, how about, I don't know, you know, like your final thoughts to the founders who hope and they're getting started or they're a couple years in and they're kind of saying, wow, you know, in 20 years, I mean, that's a long time. I've been in business a long time. I want to grow my company. I don't know. Maybe I want to sell. Maybe I want to hold. You know, can you can you wrap the the lesson up for, you know, people who are just having that internal dialogue, you know, in the early stages? Yeah, I guess, I mean, if, if, um, if you were to ask me, what would I do differently with, you know, 2020s hindsight, that's a big joke from, from last year, obviously, but I pulled a lot of money out of Envoy development. And instead of reinvesting in my company, I, um, invested in real estate and started a real estate company. I own a bunch of single family homes. I'm building two spec houses in Colorado, things like that. And, and, you know, I don't regret doing that, but in retrospect, I would have been much better off if I would have plowed that money and built out the application that we have today. And I, I know we would have been dominant in the oil industry back during the global financial crisis. So, so my advice would be, you know, don't be afraid to you know, if, if you got a great idea, don't be afraid to, you know, to plow, plow your profit back in there. So, that, you know, when I look back and, and, and if somebody is to say, what, what, what would you have changed, if anything, I probably, that would probably be my answer. I wish I would have done what we did, what we do today quicker. I wish, on the other hand, I, I, I don't regret not soliciting outside uh, money. I, I know that's, you know, what most people do and, you know, uh, obviously I'm not going to be a billionaire because, um, I, I haven't uh, done that, but, you know, just kind of think about what, what do you want out of this? I mean, why are you starting this business? I mean, is it, is it because you want to be your own boss? Do you want a certain lifestyle? You know, I started this business to make a lot of money. I'll be honest with you. And, and so part of the reason why I didn't plow every dollar in was I wanted, you know, to make a lot of money. And I, invested it and I spent it on my outdoor uh, pursuits. But I think I think the most satisfying thing for me today is having employees, knowing that you're providing, you know, the, the livelihood of, of these people. And, you know, they're quite grateful. I mean, that's probably the biggest surprise of my journey has been how rewarding it's been to provide jobs to people and to create an environment where, you know, People often, you know, call us the Envoy family, the, the people that work with us, my colleagues. But that to me is really rewarding. So, you know, you don't you don't have to be just like every other entrepreneur. Just do what you want to do. And, and it's okay to change as, as time goes on. I can't do better than that. John, thanks for coming on. I, I love that finish. You know, great insights and reflection. Thanks for taking the opportunity to, to do it here and, you know, share it with the audience. Well, thanks for having me. If anybody wants to get in touch with you, what's the best channel to do that? Go to our website, envoydevelopment.com, or um, send me an email. I get sales at envoydevelopment.com. That's easy enough to remember email address. 
Just don't be yeah. spammy, everybody. That's just John <laughs> yeah. is not John is not gonna like this this pitch. So you have to be careful. <laughs> well, I'm not the only one who gets the sales email. So yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, John, appreciate it. Uh, thanks for spending the time, and uh, we we'll look forward to the next conversation. Good luck with the business this year and for the next twenty. Hey, thanks a lot. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. You can see the show notes and more links from today's episode at leadersofb2b.com.